Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, a podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that asks that eternally burning question, just why do people get hooked on this crazy game? My name's Rod Murray, and every fortnight I'm joined by someone from the world of golf to explore this deep mystery. From players to administrators to those who are in the business of golf, all have one thing in common. For them, the game is much more than just a game. Today's guest is one of those people. James Nitties has devoted more than half his life to chasing the professional golf dream. From the mini tours of the US all the way to the PGA Tour, Nitties has been up and back down the professional golf mountain. Now approaching 40, the likeable Novocastrian knows the clock is ticking on his goal of getting back to the PGA Tour. But he also knows he's still good enough, and despite more disappointments than triumphs in recent years, he remains 100% committed to his goal. Nitties is a naturally upbeat and positive kind of guy, and he clearly continues to take great joy from the game despite being beaten up by it more than once. But then again, when your dad's jammed with ACDC back when Bon Scott was still alive, chances are you've been bred pretty tough. So let's dive in and find out a little bit more about one of Australian golf's most likeable characters, James Nitties. James, thanks for taking the time, mate. Really appreciate you doing this for us. I know it is a bit of a commitment. Uh, not at all, actually. I didn't have much on today at all, so pretty chuffed that uh, you invited me on. <laughs> that might be the nicest reaction I've yet had. I get all sorts of responses to, would you like to come on the thing about golf? And chuffed is not at the top of the list, I can assure you. Um, the premise of the show, James, the clues in the title, the thing about golf. What's the thing about golf for James Nitties? Uh, well, damn, you put me on the spot. It's, uh, I don't know, I think it's the the imagination for me that it can uh, create various different talking points, uh, either if you're a player or a pro or an amateur or um, you just want to go down the range and smash some golf balls. But it's just, it's a good world to be in. Obviously, I'm a professional golfer, so I wouldn't say that I'm a uh, coach or a, a student of the game as far as like, I don't know a lot about the, uh, the history and uh, I suppose the swing dynamics, but I just like uh, getting in and chatting about it and I love playing the game and it's uh, frustrating and great at the same time. <laughs> I think everybody who plays the game understands exactly what you mean, even though it clearly makes no sense, which sums up golf beautifully, I guess, in so many ways. Do you remember a time before golf for James Nitties? When did it start for you, this journey, this illness? <laughs> a little bit. Uh, I, I suppose I had the typical um, child life growing up, I suppose, with sports. Uh, I, I think I played soccer for about six, seven years and then uh, played basketball, cricket. Uh, I think I, I played everything under the sun. And um, as young kids do, that you sort of just progress through the sports. And then, you know, my dad, he was a, a amateur golfer. Um, himself, he took me out one time and I just became addicted like I did with all the sports. But, um, I think golf was just one of those things where I couldn't stop playing. And because it's, you pretty, you know, it's, it's accommodating to someone that can play by themselves. You don't have to be in the team arena, um, which I probably miss this day, these days. But, uh, back then, yeah, it was, I think I started golf when I was about 12, 13, went out and shot a cool 140 for my first <laughs> round. And, uh, somehow that addicted me. So it drew me in that, uh, but, uh, I think I was about 
14, 15 when I realised I wanted to, you know, play pretty seriously and, uh, yeah, continue the journey into professional. Right. So at 14 or 15, had you shown signs that said to you or to somebody else who knew a bit about the game that you maybe had enough talent to give that some thought? Yeah, I think when I was 14, I was probably around a plus one or and, uh, a one, wait a minute, one or a scratch, yeah. And then I was, you know, you're getting into the junior tournaments at that age and, you're vying for the junior state squads and Mm -hmm. so at that point i wanted to you know do it for the rest Mm -hmm. of my life i'm not sure if you know i could have predicted it back then but uh definitely was uh keen on the game enough to know that that's uh that's where i want to devote all my time to and uh yeah to keep going one of the crazy things about the game of course is james you would have come across uh guys and probably girls at that stage during that you know you're in that developmental stage as you say you're you're a step above the club golfer you're doing well at your own club events but the state squads and all those sorts of things you would have met and seen guys on the way through who at the time you would have said world beater cannot do anything but become the world number one and they disappear from the game it's a funny game golf isn't it as in who makes it and who doesn't it's more than just the skill at the game isn't it Oh, definitely. Uh, me personally, I wasn't any prodigy. I wasn't the, you know, like, yeah, I was a pretty good amateur golfer and I, you could sort of, com- I could compare that to other golfers my age and what, what I was doing in amateur golf back then. But I never thought that I was, you know, going to be the next best thing. And, but I did grow up with a lot of guys. Like I think in my era, when I was 15, 16, Guys like Andrew Buckle, Stephen Bowditch, uh-huh. these are guys that, you know, I look towards like Andrew Buckle, especially, um, you know, I don't know if a lot of listeners of your listeners would know who he was, but he was, he was something I'd never seen before. He, he had every shot. He, he was like the, the first professional I'd ever met at like 15, 16. He, it was just something that I could not do in the game of golf. And, um, it's funny because whenever I competed against him, I beat him, but it would have been just one of those things where I just putted well or got up and down all day. And, you know, I just had his number in that form. But every time I would beat him in the back of my mind, I'm like, this kid's, he's so much better than me, but it's, you know, the beauty of the game is you can beat anyone on any day. But yeah, if in saying that the, these are the guys that, you know, Queensland always produced really good golfers and, um, these, those were the two first golfers in my age group that, you know, like, because I, I also grew up with Jared Lyle, Michael Sim. Michael Sim was probably a year younger than me and, uh, like, Mark Leishman. But these these were guys that, you know, maybe I'd, I'd put Michael Sim was a freak because mm-hmm. he was so young and, you know, he, back then he never hit it as far and, and still produced such good results. But as far as it comes down to seeing prodigies, it would have been Andrew Andrew Buckle and Bowditch. Is you know Leishman never bloomed until after amateur life, even in two or three years into professional mm. life. So yeah, it's 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 an interesting game in the fact that you know you can see greatness as a kid. And yeah, Buckle Buckle uh, Bowditch went on to win twice on the PGA Tour, but you know Buckle's kind of in my position where um, you know he's knocking around the the mini tour events and. Um, still, I think he's maybe finished playing. So it's it's definitely interesting in the fact that you see kids that you you're like, that guy can't not make it, and then they never you never hear of him again. And then there's other guys that emerge as world beaters. 
It's uh, the, the the golf world is littered with can't miss kids that missed, isn't it? Uh, probably more so than any other sport, I suspect. And it's probably to do with the demands on the individual. Buckle's a prime example, I think, of golf. Unbelievable talent, extraordinary talent, really good judges. People who know a lot more about golf than you and I pointed to Andrew Buckle early and said, this kid really does have it all. And unquestionably had all the tools. But it just it doesn't guarantee anything in golf, does it? There's luck, there's management, there's scheduling. There are so many areas that you have to get right and where it can actually go wrong. Oh, for sure. And in this day and age, like you said, um, you see so many more world beaters. And obviously, kids of you know the Tiger era, a lot of kids are starting at an earlier age. And then you've got... Much, much technology is going to bring the younger, you know, the younger 11, 12, 13 year old is going to be hitting at 280, 290, 300. Like it's, it's crazy to think, but yeah, you, you're seeing kids at a young age um, flourish a lot more without the separation of, well, that kid's going to be a prodigy. Like you just see a lot of good, like everyone plays well now. Like when I was a kid, you, you kind of knew, all right, that kid, he's handicapped is a plus whatever you know he's he's pretty special even though you know you don't know what he's going to do in the future but now these days it's like nearly every junior i meet can compete on a you know a high amateur level and i'm like well you know this kid's he's got all the tools but then it obviously it's just a lot harder and you know professional golf and and amateur golf like um, I, i suppose you could say there's a lot of amateurs around now that could play professional golf, but it's more bottlenecked of talent where you, you don't know what golf, you, you don't see as many prodigies as you, you just, as you did back in the day, because it's just, it feels like everyone is a prodigy. So, um, you know, you need, as you said, luck, skill, everything needs to work for you to get, you know, out the other side of your successful professional career. And, um, it's, as I said, it's very common these days because there's more people playing golf Technology is allowing people to be more impressive at a younger age, and it's funny because it's going to be interesting to see what the whole new the Bryson sort of the Bryson squad of young kids are going to be because it's uh, it's going in a direction where I like I was on I think I was on a range the other day and I went and played the par three course at this golf course and I looked over and you know the the par three course is empty and <laughs> the range is yep. full of you know, 12, 13 year old kids. And I'm like, well, hang on this, where's the short game and where's the imagination going to go in the next 10 years. And so that's, uh, yeah, now, I don't know what your question was, but I, I rambled <laughs> on there for a little bit. That's your first warning, mate. We'll come back to the equipment and skill stuff later, but don't start the drinking game too early. We always get to it at some point okay. in the show, because I'm interested in what people think about it. And it is a real talking point at the moment. Obviously, it's been bubbling for a long time for a lot of us, but it's really sort of come to the fore. I want to go back before that, though, James. So I did my research. I'm, a, I'm an avid researcher. I looked you up on Wikipedia. Uh, and it told me something I didn't know about you. You had juvenile arthritis as a kid, which affected your flexibility. So two questions about what is that? Does it still affect you? And if it affects your flexibility, why golf? Are you nuts? <laughs> uh, yes, Wikipedia is it's maybe 70% accurate uh, most of the time, I suppose. They, uh, it's not like they call you up and... And check any uh, fact. No, that's right. Hey, Steve here from Wikipedia, James. Just want to check on your juvenile arthritis. Did you have juvenile arthritis? Yeah, so um, I did. I had what's called juvenile arthritis. It was um, it's all it's in the rheumatoid family. So there's many different arthritis, and uh, I 
I usually juvenile arthritis, obviously with the name, it, it happens. Uh, it strikes younger, you know, adults or even babies and uh, kids. It, it's in the react. It's reactive juvenile arthritis. So it's um, you know, anytime you associate arthritis, you think old age, mm-hmm. old joints. Mm-hmm. Um, but with me, it was. It, I think I'd just turned pro and I'd had I played pretty well my first couple pro events and I made up a little bit of money where I was going to then head to America and do the Monday qualifier circuit for the nationwide tour. Um, it was called back then. It's, uh, you know, right now it's gone through about 77 different <laughs> names, but it was nationwide tour back then. And I was, uh, you know, going pretty well. I think I'd qualified for six out of 10 events and I'd made about 30 to 40,000, well, about 30,000 bucks. And, I was trending in the right, you know, it, it was a lot easier back then to just uh, Monday qualify and make a bit of money. But um, I would always have this sort of niggling hip injury. It was like it was like a needle poking into my hip. And um, because we were doing a lot of traveling and driving, you know, we we're traveling the circuit. And I just figured it was some sort of uh, problem like tightness or back problem just from all the, you know, extensive travel we were doing so just sort of brushed it aside I'd have better days than other days and you know it'd go away and then it got to this point where the pain was so severe that my leg was spasming like I, I remember it to this day I, I woke up in the middle of the night my leg was shaking and I'm like it's like someone stabbed me and was turning it in my hip and I was like this is something really bad here so rushed to hospital and um cut a long story short they were like yeah it's you know you've got a back issue um it's referring and blah 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 and i'm like well this this can't be right because referring pain it's more dull pain it's not like someone's hacking at your leg with a chainsaw so um you know took was sent home with steroids and um like painkiller steroids i'm not sure not the ones that make you you big and <laughs> not, muscly, but not the uh, HGH ones. <laughs> I wish, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so you know, painkillers and managed it. Went to physios for the next month, and you know, chiros and managed it. And then it, it just got to the point where, again, where I wouldn't be able to put my pants on in the morning, and I like I'd be taking so many painkillers that I was like, I need to get this checked out. And I went to hospital again. Um, they took an x-ray and they found all this fluid on my hip and, um, they didn't know what it was. So for the next two weeks, I was held up in a hospital bed. I was a human pin cushion. No one knew what was wrong with me. Um, by this time I couldn't walk. I was on crutches. I was on a walking frame and like literally I was baffling. I was like this science experiment cause they didn't know what was wrong. And then after two weeks, this guy comes in and he was a rheumatologist and he was like, I think you've got room, something in the rheumatoid arthritis family. So the reason this took so long is because there's barely any cases in America. If I, if this happened to me in Australia, I would have been fine. They would have diagnosed it the first day I came into hospital. Uh-huh. But because I was in America, they had no clue. And um, by this time, my knee was the size of a soccer ball with fluid and my big toe was the size – of a tennis ball with fluid so what room what my reactive arthritis does the the joint fluid doesn't move through the joints properly so it just stores up in the in the joints and becomes super inflamed so um he gave me some medication and 
then that was enough for me to start walking. And then he's like, all right, I want to do this procedure. It's called an infusion. And he goes, it's, you know, it's pretty dangerous. It's 3,000 bucks, but it's like, I'm, I'm going to make sure you're all good for it, blah, blah, blah. Then I'll be able to send you on a plane home and you can get treatment again. And I was like, all right, cool, let's do it. So I had it done and it worked. And I, I was walking again and I'm obviously I'm glossing over a bit of the story, but I'm trying to condense it into me getting home to my specialist where he then told me that that, that uh, infusion that the doctor in America had done on me was illegal in Australia because there's like a 4 or 5% death rate. And I was Jesus. like, oh, cool. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. he's, uh, yeah, because it shuts your immune system down. And if I'd got a cold or if I'd got, you know, something else where my immune system couldn't fight against, then I could have died, you know. Like it's like kind of like having chemotherapy without the side effects. So I was – I was like, all right, fine. Uh, so, well, it worked. And he's like, yeah, thank God that worked. And look, I, I didn't go. I was at a really nice hospital in America where obviously uh, my health insurance tried to not pay for at the end of this, but that's a different story. But so it wasn't some like guy out of his garage with, you know, a couple of needles. <laughs> it wasn't Dr. Hill, The Simpsons. <laughs> no, no. So he, uh, he actually, you know, look, he made sure that I wasn't – I. he goes, look, I'm going to monitor you and make sure you don't have any infections, blah, blah, blah. So it was done in a safe environment, but it's it's legal. It was legal in America, just not in Australia. So, yeah, I I was then – I then I was just on medication for the last ten, – for 10 years I was on a medication which I could hold it at bay. I could feel – a outbreak or reaction coming on and it would always originate in my hip and then I'd take the pills and a couple of days later my fluid would start working through my joints better so I was able to look at it never hindered my golf career unless it was just painful like so it's not like a back injury where you can go out and you think you might hurt your back worse by playing or it was more of a pain management issue and uh yeah both those specialists met at a world rheumatoid function and they talked about my case and obviously now in america there's way more cases and um but to to end the story on a good note which so rheumatoid arthritis is, is uh it's an autoimmune disease so you've got it for life and for me i I went to the doctor four years ago and he said, your rheumatoid factor is zero. And I was like, what? It's an autoimmune disease. And he's like, you've gotten rid of it. So with, you know, as health, like I changed my diet up and I was, you know, a lot more uh, cognizant of what I was eating and um, things I was doing with my body. And I somehow I'd gotten rid of it. And I think people have it worse than I did. Like there's some people that are in a wheelchair for life because of the rheumatoid arthritis issues some are taking injections every day. I think I had a small case of it, which didn't sound like that at the time because it pretty much crippled me for a year and I, I probably lost about 30, 40 kilo. Wow. But once I was, be able to, I was able to manage it and I watched my diet a bit more and then, yeah, I was really happy to know that when I went to my specialist a couple of years ago and he was like, you have, I'm, I'm testing below average rheumatoid factor here, so you've, you've actually gotten rid of it. So I was like, well, that's a minor miracle. So, uh, yeah, it was a pretty scary point in my life. That's it. That's I probably dealt seriously with it for about two to three years. But, uh, you know, the seven years before I eventually got rid of it, I was still able to play golf 
you know, pain free as long as I had my medication and um, it didn't affect my career. So there was no really excuse. Um, it wasn't a, a stretching issue. Uh, like if the weather got bad, like cold weather, I struggle in cold weather. I still do to this day, but um, it was more of a pain management issue. So once I got past that, I couldn't make any further damage. I, I was able to play golf at pretty much a, you know, a, a normal level. So oh. Yeah, it was a scary point in time, but that's uh, that's pretty much the rheumatoid story. Some people, as I said, have it a lot worse than I do and unfortunately have to deal with it day to day. Yeah, they'll be wheeling you out at conferences soon, mate, as a as a miracle uh, recovery story at medical <laughs> medical conference. Uh, that must was there a perspective change in there, James? So I imagine when you're in a wheelchair and your knees the size of a soccer ball and your toes the side of a I mean you've got all the sports covered there, which is nice, but not doing much for your golf career, there must have been a point where you wondered whether golf was going to be in your future particularly as you said at the time and it's going okay that's a real wake-up call isn't it 100 percent, and that that was pretty much the decision making process i used for when he was like do you do you want to do this infusion i'm like yeah i just want to play golf again like at that point in time i was you know 22 years old 23 years old i just turned pro i was you know, when you're a kid, you don't care about anything else. And I'm sure it's the same as any other professional sport. When you're a young kid and uh, someone tells you about, oh, you, we, we need to have a knee surgery or we need to have shoulder surgery or something, whatever hinders what you love doing the most and what you've lived to do your whole life. It, the scariest thing was, will I play again? It wasn't, will I walk again? Or was it, you know, <laughs> all the other yeah. you know, legitimate worries yeah. that went out the window when it came to me swinging a golf club again. So, uh, it was uh, a lot of perspective, but as a young kid, you don't have much perspective. Like, if I get an injury at an, if you get an injury in an older age, you you now know through experience that all right, if I wait a little longer, I'm mm-hmm. going to be able to play longer or play quicker. But when you're a kid, you're like, who cares? I just want to get back out there. I don't care what you have to do. I want to go back even further. You, you mentioned that it was your dad that got you into golf. What did your dad do? What was he like? What sort of a what sort of level did he play? Was he a, sort of a once a week golfer, a mad king golfer that bought all the mags and watched it on TV? What was his relationship with the game? What did he do for a living? I always feel that I think Newcastle. You're born in Melbourne, grew up in Newcastle. Well, we know you as a Newcastle boy. Big mining town, obviously, bigger than that, but known for mining. What did your dad do? These things shape people. I think. What do you remember about growing up? Oh well, yeah. My my father, it, it's saying that he'd shaped my golf career was was definitely wrong. But only because yeah, he was a musician when he was growing up. So my dad's probably got an interesting, more interesting backstory than I did. He was a he was I wouldn't say he was a professional guitarist. He was he was really really good and loved playing and was extremely talented. Uh, never really wanted to take it to the next level. He was more happy just doing gigs at pubs and bars with his mates. And, uh, yeah, he frequented with some famous people himself. Like he, he once jammed with ACDC in a pub where wow. there was no one. Um, the Bon Scott era, he, he, he said he used to play – my dad used, used to tell me stories. He used to play pool with Bon Scott all the time. Proper they ACDC, James. The real ACDC. <laughs> yeah, the real ACDC. And he used to, he was in the circles of those guys like wow. Billy Thorpe and um, a lot of those, those real older sort of rock band because my dad was more of a, he, he covered like 50s, 60s, 70s music. He was a lead guitarist. Um, but 
as I said, he just enjoyed playing. It was never like, oh, I don't want to take this. Oh, you know, I need to go, you know, play my own music and and make money from it. He was just more in it for that. He enjoyed it with his mates and uh, yeah. So he once jammed out with those those guys and wow. he went to Vietnam when the war was there and he played music for the troops. So it was like you know they they'd have like a big concert for all the troops where you know they'd just all live there and and entertain and. Um, yeah, and then I think when he, I was probably I probably ruined all that for him. I think he uh, <laughs> once he uh, gave birth to me and my sister. Well, my mum did, but once he uh, helped out in that, he uh, he kind of thought, well, I got to get a real job now. And uh, I was born in Melbourne, so my my family was living in Melbourne. But when I was about three or four, my dad got a job at in a seafood company in Newcastle, and we all migrated down to Newcastle and. Yeah, that's uh, from then on, you know, my dad, he just lived the normal life and worked hard and uh, he was probably then picked up golf, I think, when he was, you know, around that age. I think he, I think he was a late, he, he started golf late as far as social golf. He was, uh, he'd have about three or four beers before he teed off just so he could hit the ball. Um, but uh, yeah, he was about a 24 handicapper and introduced, as I said, introduced me he was a one 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 day a week kind of guy. He'd, although he would love that he, my mum would uh, drop my clubs off at this before school, and then he would come to the golf course after he'd finished work, and he'd sit in the bar and have have a couple of beers while I'd just slave away on the putting green, and uh, just till darkness, and then we'd you know we'd head home, and and that was pretty much the routine, and then he'd play Saturday with his mates and introduced me to the game that way so i was he uh i think he was a bit disappointed that i didn't uh continue the uh the career of a soccer professional like a like every good little greek boy at that point should have done but uh no he was pretty proud that uh i found a sport he he wasn't interested in me playing basketball i remember that but when i when i got to golf he uh he was he 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 made a pretty good exception and was happy that I, uh, I I was obsessed with the sport. So um, yeah, that was that's pretty loose sort of description of my father and how he grew up. But uh, yeah, he's an interesting interesting cat. There's some interesting parallels there, James. The music thing. I mean, we all know golfers who are somewhat similar, don't we? I'm sure guys who you play with and think you know if they really wanted to, they're good enough to think about perhaps turning. But golf isn't that to them. It's a hobby. They just happen to be incredibly good at it, a bit like your dad with his music. And then, of course, the other irony is we don't think of golf. Golf has an image not of guys who jam with ACDC out walking the fairways. There's an incongruity there, isn't there? Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, he he tried to get me into the musical side, and uh, I, I'm definitely no musician. I'm not even – I couldn't even start it as a hobby. I was that bad, and he's – so he knew early days that he, he wasn't going to live his musician life through his son. So I, I assume he, once I took to golf and he was, uh, yeah, he was pretty proud that I could I could do something I loved, like I suppose he did for a long time. But, yeah, you're definitely not seeing uh, – you do see a lot of parallels there where there's so many golfers that have all the talent in the world, um, but they're just not interested. Mm. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of guys that play high-level amateur golf and compete at a high level, but never really have interest in turning pro. So it's, uh, yeah, it is funny. It is, you get it in all, all walks of life. People that are great at something that they're, they're not obsessed with or they don't have a love for. 
Yeah, and it's it's, uh, it's funny that for those of us who have no aptitude and would love to just be a little bit better, it drives us nuts. How can you be that good and not do something with it? You know, I can't even get the thing airborne. And look at you, you're chipping them in from sixty yards over bunkers without uh, without a care in the world. You've got what I think we'd probably describe in the modern era, James, as an unorthodox swing. That would have been shaped, I assume, around that time. Did anybody ever try to coach that out of you? Uh, that sort of different-looking golf swing. It's clearly effective. You've been making a living as a professional for the best part of what a, nearly two decades, I think, now. Uh, and what sort of shaped that? Did you get sort of coaching early on, and, and, and who did you sort of work with as it started to become obvious that you, you had some aptitude for the game? Yeah, I, I had I never got lessons at a young age, and I think that's a product of a lot of golfers that you know sort of teach themselves naturally how to play the game. And um, it's like, look, golf is one of those sports. I've always said it. It's you you need to teach yourself how to play. Like, look, if you you don't fall out of the womb learning how to swing a perfect golf club, but you do you do at a young age know how to kick, throw, jump, run. You know, so most of the other sports that people play, you can you can pick it up rather quickly, and you just need to be athletic. And um, obviously, I'm not saying it's easy to become professional in any other sport, but it, it is funny watching a lot of other athletes, albeit if they come from soccer, hockey, basketball, football, they all become obsessed with golf because it's so hard yeah. to pick up at a at any age. That's why everyone swings it differently. So. Yeah, when when you try to teach a guy that's you know pretty athletic in every other sport, and he comes, he wants to hit golf balls, and they're like, mate, it it just doesn't work that easily, and they get so frustrated because they can't pick it up so quickly, and that's why you you look down the range and everyone swings it differently because you you have to teach yourself how to play the game, and so for me at a young age, not getting fundamental golf lessons, I suppose that's that would be a product of me having a swing that looks like an octopus falling out of a tree, but <laughs> It's it's just one of those things you back in you know the back in the early two thousands or the end of the nineties when I sort of was learning how to play golf it, it was all about imagination and how how am I going to chip and putt well and it was never about distance you didn't really care about how far I mean everyone cares how far they hit it but it was always you you would always play with guys that hit a long way and if you beat them you, you, it's kind of like you. You one upped them. You could just you could give them a lot of crap and drawing and you know talk, talk a little bit of you know mischief to them. And it, it's one of those things that no matter how big or small you are, it, you you didn't have that advantage of you as a like a footballer. Or a, you know naturally big people did back then when you could just sort of walk onto a football team. So with me, yeah, just I, I suppose growing up, I I learnt myself and then. I got pretty good and learning how to play the game and then went to the Institute of Sport and, um, you know, had my swing sort of tinkered with and here and there. But I said Mark Holland and Gareth Jones, they just sort of worked with my talents. And then I went to uh, Jason Laws when I first kind of close to turning pro and only because of a comment that uh, he said about my swing and, he could tell that I was sick of people trying to fix my swing because he was like, hey, could I say something about your golf swing? And I, and I remember this. I've been with him for, I think, 18, 19 years now, and he's the head professional out of Newcastle Golf Club. Mm -hmm. But he was uh, – I was like, look, you can say whatever you want, but do not say anything about my backswing and how you think you can fix it because I'm competing at a high level right now and I don't want no one to touch it. And he goes, nah, 
How about I just uh, could I just work with you through swing for a lesson? And if you don't like it, you don't like it. And uh, he put a strap on my left arm, which worked through on my through swing on keeping my uh, connection a lot better. And I got rid of my chicken swing and uh, chicken wing, and I hit it great. And I was like, wow, that's you know changed my flight in a matter of matter of shots. And I was like, that's crazy. No one's ever done that to me before. And I was like. Well, it looks like I found my coach. So it was uh, that was pretty much my stepping stone of swing mechanics. And, you know, he works around my feels and, and knows that I'm a field player and not a technical player. And, uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history. Kind of works quite well. There's, there's dangers in there, isn't there, James? Did you ever lack confidence in your swing? It's very easy, I imagine, particularly as a pro. You look at Adam Scott and think, wow. Who wouldn't want to swing the golf club like that? As an aesthetic, it is a thing of great beauty, isn't it? And as a professional, you, you the temptation must be, well, if I could just swing it like that, I could play that way. We know that's not true. You're living proof it's not true, as is Jim Furyk and literally hundreds of other successful professionals. But it's a temptation, isn't it, that catches even smart pros occasionally fall for it, don't they? 100%. And if there was ever something great that I ever had about my game, if I was to tote my own horn or whatever you would say, it's the fact that I never looked at someone else that hit it amazing and figured I need to change to be like that. I always, my my biggest um, attribute was knowing that what I had was good enough to compete at a high level. And the fact if I could just work on that and I would just get it done in my own weird way. So that's, and that's what I see to this day or when, when I, you know, if I jump forward ahead, when I went, got on the PGA tour, the one thing I, I could, you could try, you could see. And if you told kids and they wouldn't listen and it's kids still doing this to this day, when, when I got onto the PGA tour and I played with Rory and Dustin, I played with all these guys and Adam Scott and all that my first year, I they they were ridiculous. They're prodigies, but I I understood that I didn't need to go back to the range and change my swing in order to hit it like them to compete against them. I understood that I wasn't going to win, you know, twenty majors. Or but I I was just content with being the guy that might even sneak one off them. Mm-hmm. So it was it's something that I saw where I saw kids with so much talent, like kids that could be top fifty in the world, top twenty in the world, and their first year, they would get out to the PGA Tour and their first year, you'd see them on the range every day trying to fix their swing. And I'm like, hang on, you just got to the tour. What do you need to fix? <laughs> what are you fixing? That's right. Like it's, you're in the top 1% of history of the world yeah. and you're trying to get to the level of someone that is a product that, that, that people have never seen before. So it's something that – and Aussies, Aussies fall prey to this all the time. You, you'll notice that there's so many – like. Typically, Aussie golfers swing it well, and they they do every you know they don't do the little things good, and all they want to do is swing good, and that's it. And I'm like, you come to when I first came to America, and you look up and down the range, there was some terrible swings. You're like, man, that guy is not going to compete. And then you'll see him at the top of the leaderboard. So it's 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 a I think it's a problem, and that you know really talented kids face where they watch they they they're already enough to win at a high level and once they get there they think they need to get better and it's they don't that day they can beat anyone in the world so 
that was, I think, one of my hidden talents of knowing that no matter what people said about my swing, which I got a lot of that I'd be just that guy that would because you know that would annoy them by beating them because I always understood that golf wasn't a cool sport. It's like, hang on a second, you know, anytime you think you, you're a, you're a cool guy because you play golf really well, well. I'd tell you, buddy, but it's uh, it's not how it works. Yeah, the, the cheerleaders are looking <laughs> so, at the footballers, not the golfers. So <laughs> take a take exactly, a chance. Exactly. It's counterintuitive, like a lot of things, isn't it, James? The irony is that once you get to that top level, in fact, the swing is the least important of the factors when it comes to competing. It, you wouldn't be there if you couldn't hit it. Nobody on the PGA Tour is chopping it, so they can all hit it. And the things that win golf tournaments and make golfers competitive are much more about managing emotions, uh, controlling your emotions, the way you think, having a clear head, decision-making, course management. The swing is the least of them, isn't it? And yet, it it, it is counterintuitive. Everybody, even at the top level, thinks it's about the swing. They all tinker with their golf swings. Tiger, Rory, Dusty, you see them all now doing the DeChambeau, posting videos on Instagram of them, you know, taking the Happy Gilmore sort of golf swings. It's a bit nuts, isn't it, when you think about it? Yeah, the, I think the older you get um, as a good golfer, the more you realize it's it's the swing has nothing to do with it. Once you once you get to a level of being able to compete on a on a big stage, the more you start to realize, oh, that day that I shot sixty four, was I really thinking about my angles at the top of my swing? <laughs> no, I was just I was just getting over it and hitting it, just like the days when you putt well. You're not thinking about your stroke. You just you, all you think is if I can if I get this to the hole, it's in. Yeah. So, the and then people don't realize that the days you struggle is you know you the days you think you you're trying to fit different swing routines into your swing and it and it's understandable because when look golf is the only sport that I think that can really make a man look like a child <laughs> and yes there's no one that. There's no one to hug you on the golf course. Like it's not like a rugby league or you know, like NFL, whatever sport you're playing, where you can have a bad day but you guys can still win, mm-hmm. and you know the spotlight isn't shined on you. And and you see it with tennis. Like you, you can see the the best players in the world, like Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. When things are going bad, you see them always looking to their box for some sympathy or something. They're trying to look for something to help them because they're just alone. And then. That's what golf is, and I look. I, I fall victim of this. Like it, it, one of the, those days that don't go right, you, you're just searching. So you'll go to your swing, or you'll go to your uh, pre-shot routine, or something that can get you back on track. And it's 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 a really tough place to be in. But look, we golfers are always going to be golfers. Where something new comes out, mm-hmm. and you're going to feel like like golfers just want a quick fix. Like that's why it's so easy to market golf equipment these days because it's like well there look at that driver extra 20 yards i need an extra 20 yards (laughs) so you go buy it and it's just uh, instead of being like hang on i've been hitting fairways every day with my current driver why do i need an extra 20 yards that might go in the trees or something so it's it is i I think i've learned the the toughest thing with me competing right now is actually mentally i I don't even work on my swing anymore because I know, like, I go to the range and I hit it great. It's it's more of a mental battle for me personally. And I think the, the one thing that I've lost that I had that I had as a, you know, a top-rated amateur or a young kid was I had no fear when I was a kid. There was no second-guessing. There was no, 
indecision. There was no commitment problems. And as I got older, it's it's a lot harder to commit to a line, to commit to not hitting it right or left or just – and not being scared. Like it's that no fear issue. So, yeah, the older you get, you become more experienced. You know what your problems are. You know how to make the right decisions. But the older you get, you get a bit more scar tissue. You get a little bit more cognizant of your bad shots rather than just trusting the fact that you've hit so many good shots. So I think it's, it's a reason you see a lot of top players just vanish. And it's not because their swing disappeared. They woke up in the morning and they didn't know how to hit it. It's because it's, it's much like I could talk for hours on the mental side on how hard I'm trying to work on that part of my game. And it's how it's easier said than done. Then the fact of, you know, my swing needs to be fixed. Like I've shot 12 under before, you know, you don't just lose your ability to hit it overnight. It's the fact that you trust you, you trust your ability to hit it. So that's something that I've, uh, you know, I've noticed. And, you know, you see guys like Jordan Spieth going through it now. Like there's a lot of technical guys out there that don't know what's going on with their game currently. And they feel like it's their swing when, you know, when they're hitting it, it's not because they, they can already compete at a higher level. So it's, um, yeah, it just depends what sort of golfer you lie yourself with. Like if you can concede to the fact that you're a field player or concede to the, you know, or admit that you're a technical guy and really needs a swing thought. And it's just, I, I think the Bryson thing isn't so much as like pros, pros are just trying his, like his isn't so much technical. It's, he's actually worked really hard to get where he is mm-hmm. and it takes so much work. I love how people just go, well, he's, you know, he's taking steroids and he just, and I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> even if he is taking steroids, which I don't think he is, you don't just sit on the couch and get active <laughs> and learn right. how to hit it. Here's two pills. Miles. I'm hitting it 350 now. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You, you've still got to put a lot of work in. And it, to be honest, the most impressive part of his game is the speed and the accuracy. It's not the, the distance that, that has nothing to do with it. Like Tony Finau could hit it 350, but he's going to hit it all over the place. So he doesn't, it's, it's not the fact that guys can't do, what Bryson is. It's the fact that they, they can't hit it as straight and do what he's doing right now. And that's, for me, what is the the most impressive part. Yeah, indeed. We'll come to that later. You've tried again to inject it. That's your second warning. Last, yes. that's a, and yes. that's your last. Okay. We'll get to that soon enough. I let's, get nine warnings. Yeah, that's, <laughs> let's go back to, you mentioned Jordan Spieth there, and what you're really talking about is confidence. I always love that Mike Tyson line, the boxing line. Everyone's a big talker until they get punched in the mouth. Everyone can make three footers until they miss one. That's important, can't they? That's what happens, isn't it? As a kid, you make them all. I think it was Jeff Ogilvy said to us once on a podcast that, you know, you can only grind over three footers that matter for so long before, you know, it, it has to start to get in your head. You're bound to miss one occasion. Is that sort of what you're talking about? That the the bad shots start to take precedence at front of mind rather than the good. One hundred percent. And uh, look, I, I still, I'm still trying like hell to obviously get back to the PGA Tour, and but. You know, and I go to tournaments where I'm playing with guys I've played with before, and I like I know I'm better than that kid, and I know you know I, I hit it just as good. Like it, it's, but it's it's me against me when I get on the golf That's course, right, and it's it's really I don't now I don't hit bad shots because of you know I I play a game where I don't try to hit shots I can't hit, but 
I don't hit bad shots because of my fundamentals. I hit bad shots because I'm, you know, I might hit it right out of bounds because I don't want to go left. Mm -hmm. And I'll do that all day when I'm like, hang on, you haven't hit one left all day, but you're still scared of going left. Mm -hmm. And it's, and then I'm now I'm in my head and I'm like, well, where's the, like, why, why are you even thinking about the fair? Like, so now you're having this conversation with yourself and you're like, hang on, just, I'd rather hit it left than, you know, guard against not going there and hit it right. It's like, so there you're having this chat with yourself on the course and, um, it, it's very frustrating because like I'll go out in a practice round with buddies and they're like, dude, you just shot eight under what, what are you doing? And I'm like, I, I tell you, it's, it's a lot easier out here than it is on course. And it's not the pressure of me playing against the other guys or the moment or the tournament, how big the tournament is. It's me against me. So it's really hard. As I said, then that compounds and then like the money, you know, kind of you're running out of money and uh-huh. you're trying to keep going. And some people are saying, well, you know, you don't play as good as you used to. And then other people are like, dude, you're playing great in practice rounds and, you know, you still hit it amazing. What's going on? And so it's, it's, you know, it's really, as I said, it's, it's a mental battle. And, you know, then people are like, well, have you seen a sports psych? And I'm like, yeah, I know what I've seen everyone and I know what I have to do. It's just applying it. It's, it's like the age old reading a part. It's a left or right part, part, you know, the read and I get over it and I'm like, well, hang on the last time I hit a pull here. And I don't want to hit a pull, so I might just make sure I push a little more and then you miss the putt right. Instead of just committing, hey, hit it at that left edge. And if you hit a bad putt, you hit a bad putt. So it's it's the days that it's really easy. You don't think all that mental noise isn't happening. And a lot of guys don't like to admit the mental noise. Like I, I honestly tell people sometimes, look, I'm struggling mentally. Um a lot of guys don't want to hear that. Like a lot of guys are going, well, don't, don't I don't want to hear that. Like, uh, no, I'm fine, but I try, I'm trying to work through it so I can really address it. And yeah, some days it works amazing and some days it doesn't, but, uh, I, at least I think it gives you a lot more clarity while you're on the course where I can, I can uh, really adjust to the fact where I know why I hit the bad shot instead of being like, well, I need to change my swing while I'm playing to find something. Now I just, I can kind of, you know, trust the fact that I know why I'm playing bad. And then uh, that's a lot easier to fix it mid round than it used to be. I've just got to, yeah. you just got to, I kind of have to play like I don't care. You know, like that if you hit one out of bounds, the provisionals always, always goes down the middle. Like it's really easy. (laughs) If it was so tennis, like we'd all play off scratch, like James. <laughs> if we had a second serve, we'd all play <laughs> off scratch, mate. It's not that hard when you've got That's two cracks right. at it. <laughs> See, sometimes you just have like be ready to hit one out of bounds. That's that's the secret, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. Only good players know how to do that uh, on call. Well, it's already been quite the journey, but there's plenty more to come with James in just a moment after I get some homework out of the way. Firstly, a reminder that if you're enjoying this discussion, then there's every chance you'll like what you'll find in the Thing About Golf archives. Players, administrators, course architects, and even authors have been among our subjects, each one unique and special in its own way. To find the whole back catalogue, head to the Golf Australia website at golfaustralia.com.au and click the podcast tab, or do what all the cool kids are doing and get the show delivered direct to your mobile device by subscribing through a podcast app. 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts are the big three. Check the show notes for this episode, and you'll find the link to whichever works best for you. If you're having any trouble at all with the technical side of things, feel free to send me a message, and I'll personally help you get it set up. You can find me on Twitter at at Rod underscore Mori, that's M for Mary, O-R-R-I, or send an email to golf at golfaustralia.com.au. That's also the ideal way to get in touch if you've got any feedback or suggestions. We really do love to hear from you, and I respond personally to every message that we get. Anyway, that's enough out of me. Let's get back to James Nitties. It's part of the reason I suspect why golfers, professional golfers, always look for something. You, know, you, you, you watch a bloke put a bad stroke on a putt and it misses, but the first thing he does is start tapping down a, a spike mark. That 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 uh, you don't want to admit to yourself, do you, or start telling yourself that it's you, that you're the problem. If you can find some other reason, I wonder whether that's helpful for some. You know, you, some players blame caddies for bad yardages or this, that, or the other. That's all part of that mental battle. I think I've always sort of thought that, that if you can deflect the blame from yourself, uh, that that may help with that. Is there anything in that or have I just made that up? Yeah, there is. I think people that – look, I've everyone's deflected the blame and I've done it in the past, but I realise it pretty quick what I'm doing, why I'm deflecting the, the blame. If you – the guys that do it constantly, no, no offence, but they're just shit blokes. I can just watch TV and tell you which guys love deflecting the blame or the guys that constantly fix the spike mark where they know they've hit a bad part. But as that goes back to that comment I made before that, you know, golf, golf at a higher level, any level makes men look like children. <laughs> the fact that you, there's only certain, certain amount where you can deflect the blame and know that you're the one making the mistake. And, Sometimes you you need to deflect the the blame just because you feel like you're by yourself out there. You you need to feel like you're not the only one making mistakes. But when it all comes down, and it it works the other way. There's a lot of guys that cop the blame constantly when it's you know they didn't do a, they didn't make a bad swing. And sometimes you need to be a little bit more positive, or you need to when I say positive, it's easy. You need to be realistically positive, where it's like, look, I I kind of I hit a bad shot there. Um, but I need to kind of have a, a like a hug about it, and can you help me out and cop some of the blame with <laughs> be, me? You know nice what I mean? Like that's right, yeah. <laughs> you know, like sometimes caddies will know when to do that, and yeah. good caddies will, and sometimes the caddies will know when to be like, "Oi, you you just hit a shitty shot." That's and on you, mate. That, when you can actually accept that, it's you know, it's it's pretty good. I think it's once again, I think that's just a part of not knowing where to put your emotions when, as I said, the guy that taps down the spike mark, especially the last two years when you're actually actively allowed to tap down spike marks. If you see a guy tap down a spike mark after he hits a putt, then (laughs) you know, you're like, mate, that's on you. Everyone everyone listening to this, James, is going to watch golf from now on and every single player who misses a putt and goes to tap a spike, they're going to come back and go, ah, this guy's kidding himself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're all going to watch yeah, golf differently I'll, now. That's the inside mail. Exactly. It's That's the thing. So, yeah, it's – I don't know. It's one of those things you, you're just looking for some sort of uh, help at, you know, at a, at a rough time. And uh, – but, yeah, you can only do, do it a certain amount of time to where you, you can't trick yourself that, hey, I'm, I'm actually, you know, making bad swings and bad – 
you know, bad options. Time to uh, time to get real. That's enough of all of that sort of stuff, which can wander into the negative if you're not careful. Let's talk about something positive. And I do want to ask you about this. You hold, I think, is it the joint record or the outright record? Nine straight birdies you made at the Vic Open two years ago, maybe. Yeah, it started last th- year. Yeah. Last year, okay. There you go. Tied. Tell me about that. What's that yeah. like? Nine in a row. It's, it was pretty cool. <laughs> I, I I started the day. It was a perfect, beautiful morning at uh, the Ocean Course at, down at Thirteenth um, Beach, and uh, or the Beach Course, sorry. And I uh, I was one under, I think, and I was lying in the middle of the fairway of the fourteenth hole. Which I teed off the back nine, and I made I proceed I I made a double bogey from the middle of the fairway with an eight iron in my hand, and uh, I was one over standing on the fifteenth tee, the short par four, looking at the leaderboard and seeing everyone being four and five under through six holes, and I was like, well, that's a great start to the year. I you know I this, I, I don't have my card for the next year, and I'm really trying to get off to a good start here, and I just go and stuff it up, so. I wasn't in the best headspace, and then I knocked it on the side of the green on 15 and two-putted, and I was like, okay, we made a birdie, and then then continued to birdie the next two and then hit it on the 18th for two and two-putted for birdie. I'm like, all right, we're back in shape here, and then hit it to about three foot on the first and hit it just short of the green on the, the second and got up and down, and so I'm like, oh, that's I've just made six in a row, and... Then hit one to about 10 feet on the par three. Uh, I think it's the third hole and made that to go to seven. And then birdie short par four, hold about a 10-footer there to go make eight. And I'm like, hang on, this is this is pretty good here. I, I don't know what the record is, but I've heard people mutter like nine in a row. And I had a par five coming up next. And I hit two good shots just short of the green, hit it to about four feet lip that in to make nine in a row and i was like this is pretty cool and my playing partner is like that was smart they, they're kind of just sort of hanging out they, they weren't talking like you know it's one of those things where guys playing pretty well with you you let him go unless he talks to you you won't you just let him go about his business and um i remember thinking i'm i'm no matter what i'm trying to make 10 so wherever this i hit it about 20 feet on the next hole it's kind of a tucked pin uh, right, and I was like, "All right." I remember thinking, "This putt's going six foot by." It's I am not leaving for sure. <laughs> I, I misread it a little bit, but just went a little low and uh, about you know four feet by. But I was like, "Damn, I think that was worth." I, I think that was it. And uh, you know, I came in and they told me that I, I think I tied the European Tour record. I think four dudes or three guys on the European Tour have done it, and then I think it's the same on the US Tour. Um, they told me I tied with Mark Kalkovecchia, but I'm pretty sure about four or five dudes have done it. Like, I kind of did research, and, you know, you see a lot of guys have made nine. I tell you, it's the only only world record that I've, I've tied, and I'm, so I'm, I'm, happy with, uh, I'm happy with that in the end. It's, pretty cool. it's, a, it's a pretty amazing feat, and it's it's such an a typical golf story is that you hear this so often from pros too. Shocking warm up on the range, couldn't find the club face, no idea where the ball was going. Shot ten under. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's stupidest game, isn't it? It's yeah, that's we could get straight back into the mental yeah. side. It's always expectation, just like that guy that shoots nine under and shoots even the next day. Yeah, that's right. You know the expectation of 
having to play well because you just did. It's one of those things that uh, it, it goes fair different ways. Yeah, the game never lets you off. Let's stick with the positives. Of course, you made it to the PGA Tour in 2009. So you've seen what it looks like at the top of the mountain. Tell me about that. You finished, I think you finished second at Q School. So that must have been just an extraordinarily exciting day. And at the time, you must have just looked ahead with incredible anticipation. I think you kept your card 09-2010. That's not an easy thing to do. Tell us about that experience, life on the tour, and what it's like. It's very different, isn't it? There's nothing like the PGA Tour if you're a player. Oh, PGA Tour is heaven. Um, for me, I was happy to finish second at Q School. I finished second behind uh, Harrison Frazier, which I, I witnessed him uh, shooting 59, and he missed a four-footer on the last. And I was like, dude, you've got you, – you won. You won by 15. It's all right. You don't need to just relax a little bit there, champ. So I was just happy to come second. And then, yeah, I missed, I missed my first couple cuts on the PGA Tour, but I was playing well. Um, I think I shot 10 under at Bob Hope, my third, second event, and missed a cup by one. It was a three-round cut. I think it was like 14 under was the cut. Um, and then so I was going into the waste management, which was FBR open back then, and I'm like, I'm playing pretty good. And, yeah, I was I led I led the first three rounds and um, kind of was in a really good position to win the tournament and just made a couple of mistakes coming down the stretch and finished fourth there. So – you know, the third event on the PGA Tour, and I finished fourth. I was, like, beaming. Biggest check I'd ever made. Um, and then I had, like, a, another couple top tens and, couple. you know, I competed in a couple of events where, I, you know, I was close to the league going into the last round, and it was heaven. It was easily the, the best time of my life. And um, to explain the PGA Tour, I mean, you, you would turn up, obviously, to the airport. They'd pick you up with your little sign, and they'd take you to a car park where – the naming sponsor for the week would be, you know, Mercedes or Lexus or whatever, and you'd get a car for the week. And um, I remember one tournament we were sponsored by Mercedes and I picked up my car and and the guy kind of muttered, like, you can do whatever you want with this car. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, all these cars are brand new, but they've been recalled because there's some minute, you know, error that they've made i think it was like the door handle didn't open far enough or something it was something stupid where the cars were going to get sent to the cube factory after we were done with it so i was like well can i just keep it do do you have to i can deal with that and he's like nah you know we have to take them back blah 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 but yeah like literally the cars that we would get given would have like six miles on them they're always brand new um then you'd get to the golf course for the week and you'd open your locker up and there'd be a free present. I think, you know, one week I had an iPod. Another week was like clone. Another week was a bottle of vodka. I think one week we got a green egg, which is like a four or $500 barbecue that you get that a lot of Americans have. They're really good for, um, you know, slow roasting or whatever. Right. And I'm like, yeah, but how do I, I going to take this on the plane with me? And they're, they're like, dummy, we're just going to post it to your house. And I was like, all right, that's right. I'm on the PGA Tour. I didn't right. realize. So I'm the king. It was just ridiculous stuff every week. You know, we get – you pretty much get free hotels every week because you had enough points that by being a member of the PGA Tour, you'd get flight, you know, air miles, whatever. So it's, it's funny because, like, when I was on tour, you pay for nothing. Mm-hmm. And 
like I'm playing mini tours right now. <laughs> you pay for everything. An arm and a leg. <laughs> so it's like it really put things in perspective. I never once did I, you know, justify, uh, contradict my position where I was like, I always knew how good I had it. Like there was there was a couple guys at me, like guys like Aaron Price and Nick Flanagan, we always knew man like because i played mini tours for three to four years before i got on the pga tour so it wasn't like i i went from turning pro when i was 22 straight to the pga tour like you know there's a lot of kids that i feel like they they get onto the tour really quickly and they don't realize how good they've got it and these guys you know like then they lose their card and then they pretty much give the game away because they're just never really grinded it out through that middle portion and you know work to get to that top level so not everyone but there was a fair few of us that really you know appreciated the position we were in and um you know unfortunately after two years i lost my car but i spent five years on the web.com which was uh now the corn ferry tour and um that was pretty cool it's not as nice as a pga tour but yeah it it was really truly the best part of my, you know, the, the, the most fun I've ever had in my life was playing, um, especially that first year on the PGA tour when I competed really well and, um, was just having a ball. For a, for a kid from Newcastle, sort of middle-class background, I think it'd be fair to say from what you told us earlier, sort of probably middle-class, that could almost be embarrassing, couldn't it, at times? I know that the few times I've stayed at like a fancy hotel, and, you know, the guy comes to grab your bags, I always feel bad about it. It's like, that's no, all right, mate, I've got it. I don't, you know, I don't need you to do that. Some people that doesn't bother, they're quite happy that somebody should be carrying my bags. Kids from Newcastle aren't like that. It's almost embarrassing in some ways, isn't it? Just being showered with gifts. And, and as you say, it's almost a, a sort of a reverse capitalist idea is that the notion that those who need it the least have the most. You've got, you're making so much money, you never put your hand in your pocket. When you've got no money, you're paying for everything. Yeah, that's I, – I would – I suppose Aussies in general – you know, I came from, I wouldn't say poor family, mm. but I remember – I remember I sold my driver once to pay for car rego. Wow. And then I competed in the late Macquarie Amateur with my three wood. Now, I did love my three wood back then. It was a Callaway <laughs> Warbird. And I think I finished fourth with just my three wood. But yeah, I, I, my primary income when I became good at golf was selling all my um, amateur prizes. I'd, I remember one tournament I sold a Mitre 10 voucher. It was worth 500 bucks or something. I'm like, what am I going to do with Mitre 10? <laughs> And I mean, I didn't tell my dad, but I sold it to some guy in the crowd or something for 200 bucks. And I was like, how good is this? 200 bucks cash. So, you know, I used to hustle a lot when I was an amateur and sell a lot of my stuff and that to, you know, as I said, middle class family. But I think Aussies in general are kind of like act like middle class people. Like it's, I've never met too many Aussies now. Obviously, I didn't grow up in the really rich areas or I'd, you know, I didn't meet a lot of guys with a lot of money, but I think a lot of guys have that kind of frame of mind. A lot of Aussie guys have that frame of mind when they got on tour that, you know, we knew how good it was. You know, coming to America and living in America, like, it's ridiculous in the golf circles how many guys you run into that have, like, billions of dollars. Like, when you, you used to meet a guy in Australia that was a millionaire and you were like, this guy is a god, and then you come to America and you – you you meet guys that are billionaires and they're it's the money is just ridiculous over here so yeah i think it comes naturally to guys like that but for me yeah I'm, i've never been one for you know guys 
picking my bags up and even to the fact where you play a lot of golf courses over here where you have caddies or the the card barn guys cleaning your clubs and I'm like mate it's it's all good I, I don't need you to do that and you know it's more of a tip culture over here but you rarely run it you don't run into a golf course in Australia where you, you get a caddy assigned to you to to carry your bag you know like even the sand belt there's no real caddy courses there's a couple here and there but America you play any sort of upper class golf course and you got a guy that in full overalls that carries your bag for the day and I'm like yeah I don't it's not that I don't want to don't want to caddy. It's just I want to do my you know Aussies in general just want to grab their own stuff. It's that it's that I think it's kind of a middle class kind of uh, atmosphere in Australia as it is. So yeah, getting on tour definitely. I was never or coming to America. I've never been that one to be like, hey, can you carry my bags up to my hotel room? I'm like, oh, I, I don't care if I've got 17 bags. I'm going to try get it up there in That's one right. trip and yeah. <laughs> not worry about it. So. Yeah, it was very. Um, once again, we most of the Aussies on tour, we all appreciated where we were, and um, definitely loved the fact that uh, you know we were just laughing at how good it is. Sometimes you're doing it the hard way at the moment. I guess we touched on this earlier. There was an Australian Open. I'm going to say two or three years ago. I was in the press conference when you were talking about it. And you, I th- I'm going to say second or third round, you'd played really well, and you were right near the top of the leaderboard. Were we at the Australian or Royal Sydney? I can't remember. Royal Sydney, that would have been. Royal Sydney, yeah. And you talked then about sort of the journey at the time and you were doing the mini tour stuff in the States and paying to play practice rounds on golf courses that were in awful condition. And I remember talking to you at the time about what that does sort of for your game. It's not – in some ways, being on the PGA Tour gives you every opportunity to play your best, doesn't it? Playing the mini tours and doing golf that way – makes it harder to play your best golf because everything, all the conditions, everything is sort of pushing downwards. Is that making sense, what I'm saying? How do you go from there? You, you said earlier that, you know, you're trying to get back to the PGA Tour. You'd probably give up if that wasn't what you were trying to do, but how do you make that sort of journey? Yeah, it's, it hasn't been the easiest last five years. Um, so I still currently have status on the Corn uh, Ferry Tour, but it's it's terrible status. It's past champions from like ten years ago, and um, I'm not gonna. I don't get any starts anywhere. So uh, if I could get a start in an event and make a cut, then I could re-rank mm-hmm. with the other players and uh, get onto the tour that way. But yeah, it's, I've just I've found it really difficult to get into events. I think I've I've been Monday qualifying for four years now. Probably missed fifteen events by a shot, but. You know, you're shooting six, seven, eight. I think I missed an event once, and I shot eight under. So wow, it's um, yeah, it's 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 you know, you're bottlenecking all these really good players trying. You know, guys in my position and the new kids turning pro, all trying to to buy for these. This year, it's four spots. So you got 180 guys every week, or 110 guys at each golf course. You know, on a pretty simple golf course, buying for four spots, and you know, you put a 110 guys that are putting up 400 us of their own money on a golf course they're all going to be able to play and throw them on an easy golf course they're all you know mm-hmm. four of them are going to shoot 10 under so it's kind of yeah can i shoot 10 under yes but it's really difficult every day getting on the golf course knowing that i have to shoot 10 under to get into that tournament and the added pressure of having status knowing that if i can just get in i'm I'm a good chance maybe making the cut and re-ranking to kick off my season again. So it's, um, yeah, it's been difficult. I've 
you know, there's plenty of guys that have done it and there's guys that have done that and gotten onto the PGA Tour. So I, I suppose for me personally, it's just, once again, that mental block. I, I just, I need to do it. But it's definitely not as easy as it used to be. Back when I was Monday qualifying, when I was a whippersnapper, it was like 14 spots and the, what, the fields weren't as deep and you go shoot four under, three under, and you get into the tournament. But um, it gets disheartening when you're doing like two, three, four Monday qualifiers and you, you're shooting six under every week and you, you're not playing a tournament. You know, you just say, all right, well, I just spent $1,000 getting here and trying to, you know, and I shoot suck six under and I've got nowhere to play for the week, so I'll go do it again next week. So four years of doing that to kind of send me, you know, broke. Yeah, I made pretty good money on the PGA Tour and on the web and I won, but you know, for five years of no status, it, it really, it's expensive. And not that I would ever be that player that, you know, I don't need to make money to enjoy golf. Like I actually probably enjoy working on my game more than I did when I was playing on the PGA Tour. You know, right now I, I love the fact of getting, you know, results out of different things that I try mentally. And, um, you know, I still enjoy playing the game and have a girlfriend that's, happy with me traveling and knows that it's what I love but you know I've got status because of corona they pushed my status through for one more year and yeah it's there's a lot of deliberation of me sitting in a dark room sometimes going all right well is this my last year because you know without you know the bank account's already pretty thin and without status if I if I don't get it done next year I, it, there's nowhere to really go you know you can't really I can't really go into credit card debt anymore and get my girlfriend to cover rent anymore. So it's one of those things. It's, you know, like, look, I still love life and this sounds negative, you know, everything I'm talking about, but I'm kind of, I like telling it how it is. And there's a lot of other guys in my position. There's a lot of really great golfers that have given up the game Mm -hmm. because of things like this, where these guys might have a family. Like I could rattle off 10 dudes that could be playing on tour right now, but gave the game away because of money or family issues so, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, next year kind of feels like my last crack, even though I know I'm good enough to play on tour. It's just one of those things where, you know, the the pressures of the outside really hinder the way you play on the course. And um, it's funny because when I was a kid and I turned pro and I had no money, I had no pressure. Like, I just felt great. So it's really it's one of those things of just really you, you going, you're fighting back and forwards and, it, and it's it's easy when you play well and you yeah. have that good week or a mini tour event. I, I finished, you know, sixth the other week and I played great, but then I went on to miss two cuts and two Mondays. And I was like, really, you know, this is what you bang in your head up against the wall. You're like, I just spent three and a three, four grand for three weeks. And I didn't even really play that bad. And, you know, I'm, what have <laughs> I got, got nowhere to for? go with it. So yeah. You, yeah, you alluded to it earlier, James. People around you who care about you must see that, and it must be an emotional roller coaster. You're an upbeat guy, and you, you know, as you said, you're not not being negative about it. But the realities are pretty stark, aren't they? Uh, and people who care about you, your girlfriend, I imagine your parents and friends, occasionally saying, "Is this really what you want to keep doing?" Have you asked yourself those questions? And if the answer ever comes back no, what is next for James? It is. Do you have a backup plan? It feels like for me. A lot of professional golfers don't. They come to a point in life and suddenly they don't have golf to compete at anymore and it's like, oh, what am I going to do? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's the question. That's the million-dollar question. Um, look, if I, 
I, I could easily do this for the rest of my, if I was single and I was, you know, I could easily play golf for the rest of my life if I was, if I knew my expenses were obviously paid for and I could, you know, you can't just do it for free. But, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, you know what, I see a lot of golfers that get a job and then they come and play a pro-am or play a little competitive event. They play really well. And then I've got a lot of buddies that are like, man, I'm, you know, I, I'm the most stress-free and happy I've ever been. Like, mm-hmm. they've got a day job. Yep. And for me, it's it's one of those things too. I Like, I I think if I – my backup plan, which I don't really have one, <laughs> is I'd love to yeah. get <laughs> – I'd love to get into broadcasting, I uh-huh. think. Um, it's obviously easier said than done, but M- – Might be a smaller a world professionally plan. than playing golf for a living, James. <laughs> it's a, the queue's a mile long for those who devoted their life to broadcasting and for those who bring what you would bring to broadcasting. There's, there's obviously a place for that, but it's not a whole lot less competitive, uh, that world either. So they're uh, not trying to sort of talk it down. Also, I think you'd be good at it, but there's there's lots of people who kind of want to do it too, you know. there's uh, You're not, oh, swap, you're not yeah, swapping so one easy job for another. Yeah, I had an opportunity uh, to do a little bit for the Corn Ferry Tour this year. Uh-huh. Um, I was contacted by the tour and, you know, was offered maybe a testing position to maybe do a couple of events because I did do a couple of events about four or five years ago and then had an interview with the Golf Channel and they were like, well, are you ready to give away golf? And I was like, no, I'm currently got full status and would like to keep playing golf so we kind of looked at each other and like what am i even doing here but yeah it's it's small opportunities show themselves and then maybe i won't have that again so this year i was you know in line to maybe do a couple events and i was like well that'd be great i'd be able to maybe get my foot in the door and really test out if Mm -hmm. i'm good at broadcasting but being that the corn ferry tour isn't the the most heavy schedule i could play on the side you know they only had eight or nine televised events so that was the plan this year and obviously you know covid threw a spanner in that works and that that kind of vanished but you know i'd I'd like to pursue and maybe put a bit more work into trying to get into the broadcasting side obviously i love doing these podcasts i love you know talking whenever i can um on subjects that i know a lot about but it uh yeah i still really want to play but it's yeah i'm in that no man's land where some days I wake up and, you know, I, I, I don't know if the thing that I've been doing for my whole life is going to be taken away from me. And then I'm like, well, what do I do? I don't know how to do anything else. So it's just one of those things I think a lot of pro golfers towards the end of their career or even um, at the crossroads think about. And uh, it's really going to – that's going to be my next kind yeah. of four or five months of, you know, being stuck in America in winter and not really being able to play golf at – I'm sure I'm going to have a lot of uh, thinking to do, if yeah. you know what I mean. Let's talk about some of the highlights on the way through. I've got a mate who lives in New Zealand, and he works at a golf course called Chisholm Links, and he told me that you won the New Zealand Amateur there. Is that true? <laughs> yes, that uh, that is true. I, 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 did, I played really well in New Zealand when I was an amateur, or I think I won about three or four different amateur events over there. And um, Yeah, I, that was a pretty memorable week, that one, actually. I... Uh, I, it was a brutal week because it was blowing a dog off a chain and it was about uh, minus 80 degrees. But um, it was uh, I was pretty pretty fond and pretty happy to win the New Zealand Amateur there. Yeah, that's, uh, 
that was uh, that was a fun one. It, he he raves about the golf course, says it's potentially something very special. It looks very rustic from the photos and whatnot that I see, quite raw, but it does look to be in a pretty special location. Do you have much memory of the course and what unfolded that week? I assume is it like the Australian amateur straight play then match play? Yeah, it, and it was I. I don't remember the whole course. I remember one of the holes you pretty much have to hit out into the – well, I used to play with about a 30-yard cut back then. So <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the holes, it, would be, it was whipping off the ocean and it had kind of cut across um, the corner of the ocean. I Like I had to – this is back when I had the fear of a praying mantis where I just aimed straight out of the ocean – and would hit my cut and just knew it would come back onto the golf course. And then I'm pretty sure I I, I eagled that hole, which was like a 420-meter par four. I think I drive a six iron in the hole, and, and uh, yeah, the guy I was playing in that match wasn't pretty – wasn't happy with that. But <laughs> I um, I think I beat, I beat Kurt Barnes in the quarters, Michael Sim in the semis, and then I played Hamish Robinson in the final – and there was about 300 people following us, and the only supporters I had were Kurt Barnes, <laughs> Michael Sim, and a couple of the other Aussie boys that had stuck around after a bender and uh, decided to come out and follow me a little hungover because that's just what you did back then. You got knocked out, and you're in a college town. You'll go out and have a couple of beers. So, um yeah, that was a pretty. That was a good one. I, I played pretty good in the final. I think I might have beat Hamish like four and three or something. But that that was awesome. That court, yeah, it reminds me kind of the Coast Golf Club in Sydney. It's uh-huh. like you know a course that could be something really special if it maybe had the money or um, you know the the time and effort. But it it has the land, like the land. Yeah. So yeah, that was I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was a good week. All right, you had your two warnings. Let's talk about – well, we talk about Bryson, I suppose. He's kind of the latest sort of checkpoint for this. We're really talking about distance, the state of the game, technology, the relationship between players and courses. Where do you stand on all of that? <laughs> simple question, uh, just to get us underway. <laughs> it's a very – it's pretty simple uh, where I – look, I would love the ball to be rolled back. I – I'm a massive advocate of them putting more spin on the golf ball. I'm still okay with the ball going 400 if you center it. Mm-hmm. I just don't like the fact that you know the average touring, the average distance on tour right now is 300 yards. Like if you're not if you don't hit it 300, you're outside the top hundred. When you know back in the day when 300 yards was leading, the next best mm-hmm. was like 265 yards. So, um. I'm I'm okay with the ball going miles. I'm just not okay with the ball spinning so low because I just it's you know the drivers are big enough as it is. I you hear Bryson and he's like, yeah, I swiped that one and it still goes three forty. It it's um, I think the the whole distance debate. Everyone's all around the ball going too far, but no one talks about the spin on the ball because. Um, yeah, like if, if you want to swing 130 at it and you center it, the ball should go far. It, mm-hmm. it shouldn't. You shouldn't be penalized for hitting a perfect golf shot. But if you want to swing 130 and you hit it out of the heel and there's a guy swinging 120 and he hits it out of the middle, he should hit it dead straight and further than you and yours should be 40 meters offline. So, but then 
like so I, I talk about this. Look, the, my my <laughs> I would say spin on the ball, give Iron Byron the robot a uh, a one twenty swing speed or a one ten swing speed. Ball can't spin uh, lower than a certain you know a certain uh, revolution. Um, that way, if you want to hit it harder, it's going to spin more, but you've got to hit it straighter. And then my other my other suggestion would be just take the driver head down to 300cc. Still have metal heads, still, you know, you can do all aerodynamic testing and marketing and whatever, just make the driver head smaller so it is harder to hit the sweet spot with a, you know, the harder you swing it. But so in saying that, I will rush to a TV to watch Bryson hit it because I'm like I'm the guy that love would love the rollback, but I just kind of know it's not going to happen. So it's like yeah, there's too much. Mo- I think there's too much money involved where and too many putting the restrictions on. I look, I, it's just one of those things we can debate all we want. It's like politics. I'm not not a very heavy guy on politics because I know I'm not going to yell at someone when I know nothing can really be done. You know, like it's if there's I don't think there's actively going to be a change. So I'm I'm all I'm all for the rollback and I want that, but I I love the way Bryson is making people angry, if you know what I mean. Like <laughs> I love that he makes the traditionalists angry and I love that I'm all for the ro- rollback. So I'm like on both sides of the coin where I would I'll turn the TV on to watch him play and I like it. Like I think the greatest thing would be if he demoralized the masters. Like I would love to see him hitting 40-yard flip wedges into par fives at the Masters after taking it 400 yards over the trees. Like, I just – I'll laugh. I think it, it'll be hilarious. But I'm for the rollback. So it's like if you're not going to do it, this is what's going to happen. Like, because this is me talking to the USGA right now or whoever has the governing body and power to roll things back. But I'm like, if you're not going to do it, this is the direction we're going to go in and I'm going to laugh at – you know, laugh at you guys for not doing anything. But – He's also worked you, – you can't just, you know, ro- as I said before, roll off the couch and hit it oh, no. 400 no, no, and hit, you know, 60% of the fairways. Yeah. But um, So he's worked hard to get there, but he's also – he's exposed the game to the point where nothing has been done for long enough where he's like uh, – he's sat in his dark room with his physics <laughs> books and he's like, this is – you know, like he would have done the same thing back in Jack sure. Shearer. Like sure. I don't care what people say. He w- Someone he would have found a way to expose the game. Like you, you get a lot of people through time doing it, but he's just found his way to do it, and he's worked hard at doing it. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm on both sides of the coin. I love, I would love it if they rolled it back because half the kids that are grow, you know, everyone, the track man robot kids that are running to the range, everyone's hitting five, six up on it with two thousand spin. If you put a bit of spin on the ball those kids wouldn't be able to compete. They would have to, like, change their whole swing dynamic. And, ha- you know, because I grew up hitting down on the ball um, when I was a kid and I hit six down and five across, played with a snap cut. And then when all the t- new technology came out about five, six years ago, like the really, you know, the the technology that really took the spin off the ball, I couldn't hit it. I, I couldn't keep the- get the ball in the air because I hit so far down on it. So it took me about two years to even get the ball in the air. So now I'm, I'm hitting it further than I ever did um, because I can finally hit up on the golf ball and trust it enough to not think it's going to go in the trees, you know, like, you know, you, you, but now you've got 
you know, you got Bryson talking about how he wants to hit seven up on it with a 40-inch driver. Like, you, can you imagine if there was a little bit of spin on the golf ball, trusting it enough to hit seven up on it, knowing if if you miss hit it slightly, it's literally going to go 100 yards right or left. So sounds a yeah. The dimensions are different, but it sounds a bit like the persimmon and Ballada game, doesn't it? What you're exactly. describing, and that's which I, is I, kind I, of the balancing act, say, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, look, good spin back in the day was like mm. three thousand, four thousand. Like it's now, it's it's kids are getting it at sixteen, fifteen hundred, mm-hmm. and that's hitting ten degrees difference from back in the day. So you know. You used to see Greg Norman and he'd hit this beautiful tee shot and it'd, it'd go down before it went up. Yeah. And now everything's about optimal numbers. So it's all about launching it so high because the ball doesn't, um, the ball doesn't spin enough. So you have to launch it so high to keep it in the air. But there's no side spin. So no one's scared about launching it high and losing it, you know, right or left. So, and I, I even heard someone's saying that Titleist is thinking about taking more dimples off the golf ball. So the ball's going to spin even less. So you're going to get guys just hitting it as hard as they can because they know it's not going to go offline. But if you, if you, <laughs> if you added just a little bit of spin to the ball, there'd be, it'd yeah, be chaos. Be, yeah. People would be so angry. It'd be hilarious. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny. There are people who exist in the world, James, who love this game, who have never seen, that flight you're talking about, Norman hitting it where it goes flat for the first 75% of the flight and then it just suddenly, Brad Hughes talked about this on the last episode, it just fizzes and climbs. It's, just, it's like yeah. a jet taking off. It zips down the runway and then bang, it's up and it goes and then it falls down like the proverbial butterfly with sore feet. More broadly, and a lot of these discussions are the internal discussions of the game, aren't they? Where golfers, we understand the impact of distance on the game and scoring and the skill sets required and all those sorts of things, and they're all internal discussions. What about the bigger picture for golf, James? I wonder whether there's a different attitude to this in America where everything seems to be sort of bigger and better, including the amount of available space. But can golf courses continue to get bigger to accommodate a game that keeps growing in the distances that people hit it. Because whilst Bryson is incredible, you're right, Bryson's incredibly impressive with what he does, most people who are going to try and develop that sort of club head speed won't have his sort of control. So now, outside of the golf course becomes an issue, and people from outside of golf will be starting to, well, think about dictating terms on how much resources and space golf takes up. Is there any of that is is that part of the discussion? Anything that you or do you think golfers think about enough? Uh, look, I don't think so. I while we all you know sit on Twitter and debate it and watch it on TV, it's we're really talking about one percent of the sport in general. Like the the most of the money's made in the amateur game, and I think worldwide. Amateurs aren't going to start overpowering golf golf courses, so you don't really need to build out golf courses to support the general, you know, funding or the general sport in a whole. What about more though, James? What I'm talking about is what about the kid out there who's 12, 13, 14, he's watching Bryce and he's like, that's what I want to do. He doesn't have the skills. He's never going to have the skills uh, necessarily to be a pro, but he's developed a golf swing that allows him to hit the golf ball off a handicap of 13 or 14 or 10 or even 20, 320 yards in the air and 50 yards offline. 
So now a house outside yeah. the golf course that was never an issue and has never been an issue suddenly is getting peppered with golf balls or even the occasional golf ball. That's, I guess, what I mean. Because whilst you're right, most of the really long hitting and the real benefits are going to those with the good technique who are pros and those things aren't an issue. The truth is that seeping down as well. You must have played in a pro-am with a young bloke or even a middle-aged bloke who had outrageous club head speed and no control over where it was going and hit it 300 yards 100 comfortably. And- you you correct, and that is going to happen. I just don't think it's going to happen on the scale that, yes, look, one, if you're the guy that owns a house that's getting peppered on the golf course, well, <laughs> sorry, champ, you shouldn't have bought a house on a golf course because he's getting his house is getting hit more by the guy that's the, the 27 handicap that's blading one out of the front bunker into his windscreen than the kid off the tee that's, you know, built these phenomenal skills to be able to hit it into his backyard. And it's it's not going to be a lot. It's it's going to happen. I just don't think it's going, you know, yeah, it's a good argument, but I don't think that's going to reshape the whole debate of golf in general. I think I think Australia is more in, je- you know, jeopardy of losing golf courses to real estate mm-hmm. than it is, you know, like distance and, you know, that, that, what we're talking about right now and as far as as far as pros overpowering the game there's there's thousands of golf courses in america that play the front tee for the amateurs and there's seven tees behind for the pros if you know what i mean like i mm-hmm. tpc craig ranch where i play you know it plays like eight thousand yards from the back but the members never play it from there if you i think if you if you can consistently shoot even par from the back tee, you're a plus eight or a plus nine. Right. So it's 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 a very interesting layered conversation that we could have. And I agree, like I reckon the pro tour in 10 years or 15 years is going to be that kid that you're talking about. Everyone's going to be hitting it Bryce and length now. But um, as far as is it going to shape the way – People think of, you know, designing golf courses for the average golfer. I don't think so. I, I, I still think that there's enough amateur traffic and, you know, I don't know, hacker traffic to fund the game of golf without exposing the, you know, in, increasing golf courses landmass mm-hmm. uh, incredibly for the 1% of the professional game or the elite kid game or amateur game. But, yeah, it's. I wouldn't be buying a golf. I mean, I, I'd if I was buying a house on a golf course, it, the location would be very thought out. If, uh... <laughs> and you'd hope you'd get it right. If we accept the basic premise that professional golf is merely entertainment, and let's be honest, it's not brain surgery or cancer research, so it can only be entertainment. Its net value to the world is how much entertainment and joy it can bring to people. Is a game going in the direction that the game is going at the moment there might be a generational element to this, more entertaining, less entertaining, or just different entertaining to the game that you and I grew up watching, that Greg Norman and Seve Ballesteros played? Different different entertaining. Um, I had someone say this to me the other day. It's like, well, you know, the art of the game is lost and, you know, shot shaping's lost and, um, you know, real feel and imagination is lost. And, and I agree, it will it will be. Um, and no matter what I say or me or you or people that love the pure and traditional way of playing golf, there's that 
there's a lot of guys that find golf or kids right now that find golf entertaining that never saw that and they don't really they don't care you probably put a you know an epic event of jack nicholas winning the masters and that kid's he's yawning like he's like what's this they're just they, they see it looks like they can't even hit it straight the ball's moving so much in the air you know what i mean like mm-hmm. but so you're bringing in this whole new era of fan that yes guys like us like we're probably gonna we're gonna be wait phased out and there's still going to be the traditionalists and the you know the old old guy yelling at the crowd guy conversation that is like well the you know back in my day but they don't people don't care anymore it's it's like any sport that every sport is evolving to to meet the new fan and especially with golf um this is prevalent in australia where we've struggled to get sponsorship for tournaments for years and years because Really, no one cares about golf in Australia like me and you do. Like, we've we're, we're like, how can we not get a sponsorship for an Australian Open where we have some of the best players that have ever played the game come and play? But the the Supercars Series down the road gets like eighty seven beer companies and forty six like different other sponsors when that's just cars going around in a circle. So it's. It, it's a, it's really sad, but like coming from Australia, there's never been sponsorship because no one really that the younger generation doesn't really care about golf in Australia when they will play maybe once a week, but really they really it doesn't bother them if they watch it on TV, and that's the sad part. But that's why I think it's it's the game's just going to steamroll over people like you and me that really would love to see the traditional game played. And the the struggles where new newer fan the newer fan is going to be like I don't really care because this is the the game that I grew up on and this is the game that I like you know like the Bryson style or the entertaining style the flair like all the, the young kids you know wearing all the new stuff or what what whatever it's going to be I hoodies think the game will evolve hoodies James yeah, my <laughs> goodness a hoodie how it'll evolve possibly yeah it's whatever we say about it I think it's going to be fine evolving on itself and I. It, I don't think it, it's it'll stop for anyone, especially in America, where everyone just craves sports, no matter what it is. Do it brings into question. Ultimately, you may be right. We might be on the losing side of this discussion, which doesn't mean you change sides. Although you probably do, because you're on both sides, so you got to foot in each camp. You've done very well there, like Italy in the war. You can't lose here, James. <laughs> exactly. You, that's you, what you got to do. That's right. You've set yourself up beautifully. But do we not have a responsibility to speak for? those issues as well because just assuming that the direction the game might be heading because that's where it's heading is the right direction that's problematic too isn't it it's not necessarily the right direction just because we're old and we yell at the sky doesn't mean that we don't know anything about anything that's true and the reason i say i'm on both sides of the argument is because the the fascination i have with watching bryson is my other interests in life like fitness and health and speed and agility and all the other exciting, you know, the reason I watch the NFL and the reason people watch AFL or rugby, it's like this this athlete that's done something that he's brought an athletic perspective to the game that we've never seen before, which, you know, we, we've got to agree that back in the day, the, the, the most athletic thing that was done is you'd, you'd have, you'd be, you'd be the guy that could drink 
a bottle of scotch in the bar with Ooh. seven cigars after after the game. I reckon you're and, stereotyping there, and I reckon that's unfair. I reckon Norman was pretty fit, and I reckon and people will tell you people who shook Arnold Palmer's hand that he would crush your hand. Now they might not have had the gym workouts and the biomechanical knowledge that we have today, except that. But but. Yeah, you've only got to look at photos of Palmer in particular to see a bloke who was athletic. And Norman, you would have met Norman. A bloke at 60. I mean, it, Lord knows he goes well, on Instagram often and often enough with his shirt off to, to tell us that he's still still sporting the body of a 35-year-old. So there was a, I think the knowledge has changed. But that notion of athleticism, and we may be talking about different things but using the same word perhaps. Yes, but, uh, that's you know, what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. perhaps. I, like, I don't, don't, get, don't get me wrong. Athletic. Being an athlete and athleticism are two different things. It's yes, perhaps. you know, like I'm. I agree with you totally. Like the strength and and being able to do something that no one else has ever done before. That the like I I still think that. Don't get me wrong. I reckon Jack Nicholas could do what Bryson is doing if he wanted to. It's just not what it called for back then. There's still a very athletic game back then, and they. They did stuff that no one else could ever do, but it's it's kind of like everyone is taking all the new technology and every they're turning athletes into I mean athletic people in the game that we have now into athletes. Like that's the way the game is going. Where it's not just good enough to be athletic. It's like no no, I have to have a six pack and swing a golf club now. It's not back then. It was like no, I'm strong and I can swing it and compete at a high level. And I'm better than the guy standing next to me. I'm better than everyone in the world. It's just now that everything in life has just evolved. And now golf is a, a trending to more being athletes. Not saying that no one was athletic back then. That's but that's where where the, the argument is. Like I'm it, it always comes off as saying that that they weren't athletic back then when they just weren't athletes back then. It's it's and they could have been. Like if they they, if the game was evolved back then with that era, if that if that era was playing now, it, they'd still be great. They'd still be Jack would still be the best. It's it's not changing anything in the debate of, you know, like when I when you talk about it, it's people think that you're degrading the eras, but I'm not. It's just the way the game's moved, like any other sport. Like you look at basketball, you look at NFL. The way it just moves now, where you're going to give someone the best of the best opportunity the best are going to take advantage of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, indeed. You've brought us full circle quite neatly, James. We started from a position of the golf swing's probably the least important thing in creating champions. And as you've just pointed out, if Jack Nicholas was born today, whatever the requirements were, the questions the game was asking, he'd be the one who'd find the answers because those are the elements that make uh, champion golfers. And I think your determination and the fact you're still out there and, and at it, James, fantastic. It's been great of you to take some time today, but it's been really, really, really good fun to talk to you. Thanks very much, mate. Thoroughly enjoyed it, Rod. It was great. I'm not sure whether you'd agree, but I can't help but feel that James is at a bit of a crossroads based on that chat. And I'm sure that you, like me, wish him the very best in whatever comes next. Now, normally at this point in the show, I announce who our next guest will be. But I'm breaking with tradition this week because... Well, there's no point sugarcoating it. I haven't yet finalised who our next guest is. I've got a few irons in the fire about the place... All of them are worthy nominations for a stint in the guest seat, so all I can do is recommend that you make sure to join us on episode 30 of The Thing About Golf. <laughs>